Good afternoon, night, or morning, everyone. It is Monday, the 11th of February, and this is another edition of Fearmonger Fridays. A little late, I know, and I promise to get the show out on a reliable schedule very soon. I am DJ Kinney, and you are in the Cold War Vault. Let's talk about something that's flown under the radar if you're not someone who follows defense news on a day-to-day basis. It's the kind of thing that should probably get a hearing in the wider media, but the background as to why it matters, it goes fairly deep, and so I see why they might not cover it. This ties in with last week's Fearmonger Friday episode on the end of the INF Treaty, so if you haven't heard that, give it a listen. As with all complex issues, you can always start somewhere farther back and offer more background, but these episodes are meant to be short and comment on something current. Some have told me I have a roundabout way of telling a story, so let's start where we will end. That is 17 miles northeast of Amarillo, Texas, in the Panhandle. It's the Panhandle of Texas, so it makes a lot of sense that we'll start with a sprawling industrial campus called Pantex. Now, Pantex isn't just any factory. It's an assembly and disassembly facility that constructs and deconstructs nuclear weapons. It's been in the business of bombs since World War II. For most of the years since the end of the Cold War, Pantex has been disassembling surplus nuclear weapons and replacing expired components for what's called the enduring stockpile. This is a plan to continually maintain the U.S. nuclear weapons that are left, which were mostly designed in the 1970s and assembled in the 1980s. Pantex has had plenty of controversy particularly around the issue of the environmental dangers of storing plutonium and the risks of dismantling thermonuclear weapons next to Amarillo. I highly recommend a 1994 documentary called Plutonium Circus if you want to learn more about that. I'll try to find a link and put it in the show notes. But as with all things nuclear, the bad come with a lot of good. So Pantex was taking these things, these uh, tools of Armageddon, you might call them, taking them apart. So for me, it was always a symbol of the slow end to a grave danger in the 1990s. Also in the 1990s, and maybe on the side of the optimistic, the U.S. also stopped underground nuclear testing. That was in 1992. And you might ask, why did the U.S. stop testing nuclear weapons in 1992 and start to dismantle the ones in the stockpile? Well, times were changing. The Soviet Union was breaking up, and then on the 5th of October 1991, Mikhail Gorbachev announced a moratorium on Soviet nuclear testing. Three weeks later, the U.S. Congress did the same. And that was followed by France and, after the Soviet Union dissolved, Russia. 
Russia and the United States would never test nuclear weapons again. So here's a quick timeline for context. The UK quit testing in 1991. France and China kept on until 1996. India and Pakistan didn't give up until a hilarious competing testing series over a couple of weeks in May 1998. And North Korea continues to this day. The general lid on testing is also fairly remarkable because the world has really never been able to agree on a comprehensive test ban treaty. The partial test ban treaty keeps tests out of the atmosphere, out of outer space, and out of the water. Though the U.S. signed the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which would have prevented nuclear weapons from being tested underground, it was never ratified, and so it remains unbinding. It was also never ratified by China and never even signed by India and Pakistan. With that looming lack of agreement on testing, some of these attempted Cold War treaties have led to real and meaningful changes You might be able to argue what is meant by meaningful when it comes to anything less than the total abolition of nuclear weapons, and that's an interesting discussion that we can have sometime. Last time, we talked about the newly deceased Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF, that was moderately effective at reducing the most destabilizing weapons. The Intermediate Range Ballistic Missiles which had the shortest warning times, were the cheapest to build and the easiest to move. So let's quickly talk about another treaty that has made some positive changes, and that is called New START. Sometime I will definitely talk more in depth about the long road of salts and starts that peppered the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, and today. SALT stands for Strategic Arms Limitation Talks. SALT-1 had an agreement in 1972. SALT-2 ended in 1979, and it looked like it might lead to something, but it was never ratified because the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. These talks led to the STARTS, Strategic Arms Reduction Treaties. START-1 in 1992 with the Soviet Union, and START-2 in 1993 with Russia. Then between 2003 and 2011, there was SORT, the Strategic Offensive Reductions Treaty. Then START three never really got off the ground. And finally, in 2010, New START was signed and ratified in 2011. The intricacies of all of these negotiations and treaties could fill many, many books. But for my point here, how about... These facts from the Brookings Institution. In 1966, at the peak of U.S. weapons stockpiling, there were 32,193 units. Over the course of the Cold War, the U.S. alone built more than 70,000 nuclear weapons. The New Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, New START, calls for a reduction of strategic nuclear weapons in the U.S. arsenal to 1,550, with a few more in reserve, but you get the idea. That's a very simplified view of the subtleties and details that took years and years 
to evolve. But the differences, I think, are obvious between the coldest days of the Cold War and today, because long decades of diplomacy and the production of nuanced agreements do matter and can eventually get results. They build trust and they act as gestures, overtures. After the ratification of that treaty, U.S. President Obama shifted the stance of U.S. nuclear forces in his administration's nuclear posture review. This is a document that each administration produces to sort of set the tone for the use of nuclear forces. The review stated that the U.S. would not use nuclear weapons on non-nuclear armed aggressors. That largely took the pressure off of Russia and China, who might have otherwise feared that the U.S. would use nuclear weapons as an asymmetrical response to a more localized conflict, say in the Persian Gulf or the Baltic states, increasingly Venezuela, or some other as-yet-unknown flashpoint. This is in contrast to the new nuclear posture review, which undoes this assertion in its entirety. The document makes mention of holding aggressors accountable for acts of aggression, including new forms of aggression, and frequently it makes use of this strangely ambiguous term, non-nuclear strategic attacks. What could constitute a non-nuclear strategic attack? Well, I take this to mean cyber attack, especially on infrastructure. As a hypothetical example you can draw from this language, a nuclear attack could be launched on a non-nuclear state because of a cyber attack or attempted cyber attack on the power grid of the U.S., let's say. Let's imagine a state-sponsored hacker in his basement in Tehran. The Nuclear Posture Review under Obama used to state that no nuclear weapons would be developed. But in early 2017, President Trump asked the assembled Joint Chiefs and Secretary of Defense why they couldn't just build 30,000 new nukes. It was explained to him by Secretary of Defense James Mattis that building 30,000 new nukes would cost most of the defense budget and not incidentally violate most of the arms control agreements on the planet. The president reportedly was outraged and accused all of the generals of being weak. Whatever negotiations with the Joint Chiefs and Mattis, the president's request for new weapons was eventually included in the new nuclear posture review. Sort of. The review called for a low-yield nuclear weapon to be designed, developed, and built on a very compressed timeline to be deployed on the U.S. Navy's Trident II missiles. James Mattis wrote in a letter to Congress defending the project. He wrote that the W-76 Mark II does not require developing a new nuclear warhead or nuclear testing. It does not violate any nuclear arms treaty, and it does not increase the size of the nuclear stockpile. 
That is tricky. That's all very true. The project just calls for modifying the W76 that's already deployed by removing a part called the secondary. And suddenly, it's a small nuclear weapon. And I put that in quotes, somewhere between 5 and 7 kilotons. The point of the low yield is to be flexible in response and reduce the chance of escalation to bigger weapons and world war. This has been a generally laughable policy since at least the early 1960s for the simple and sensible reason that no one, no country, can trust another country when it says, trust us, we're just going to nuke you a little bit. Among many other arguments to be made against it, it has been suggested that smaller nuclear weapons remove the psychological barriers and resistance to use that presidents might have. The president might feel less restrained about using it in a crisis. This could potentially be a problem for an impulsive president who, let's say, resents being restrained, if a country were to elect such a president. Nevertheless, by April, initial funding had been allocated. At a campaign rally on the 20th of October, 2018, in Nevada, Trump made the remark that Russia had been violating the INF for many years. He said, they have been violating it for many years, and we're not going to let them violate a nuclear agreement and go out and do weapons, and we're not allowed to to do weapons. This might mean delivery systems. It might mean new warheads or both, all of which were prohibited to some degree under the INF treaty, certain types. So about three months later, the U.S. suspended the INF, and Russia did the same the next day. On the 28th of January... Just a couple of weeks ago, so here is the current state of the situation. Here's your current events for you. The National Nuclear Security Agency sent an emailed press statement. It said that the W-76 Mark II warhead is on track for delivery to the Navy by the end of 2019. As I mentioned about the W-76 Mark II, it isn't really an assembly of a new weapon. It is a disassembly. The W-76-2 is being built by disassembling and removing the secondary component, which is a perfect job for a facility that might have previously and recently been known for nuclear weapons disassembly under the guidelines of treaties. Maybe a sprawling industrial campus near Amarillo in the panhandle of Texas. In fact, as of this week, the beginning of February 2019, the first production unit of the W76 Mark II will have been completed and rolled into the warehouse at Pantex. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, DJ Kinney. This has been the Cold War Vault on this Fearmonger Friday. 
Very soon, look forward to new themes and non-nuclear topics. Follow The Vault on Twitter and Facebook at Cold War Vault. See the website for show notes and other things as I put them up at coldwarvault.com. And please like The Vault on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. It really, really makes a difference. Until next time.